You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 181. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss the gamification of education with J.D. Calvelli. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how are you doing? I am still doing okay. The project that we've mentioned before of going off to the field again has been pushed back by another week. So I think I, that means I get an extra recording with you in addition to this <laughs> week's, uh, which is uh, exciting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, the, to uh, you know everything that we can do before I go. And last week, I kind of fell into a project that's that's pretty cool. It's a, it's a mapping project with an historical group out of Yorktown Heights in New York. And they're trying to find the locations of Rochambeau's, a number of Rochambeau's camps from 1781 and 1782 when the French army was here as part of the hmm. American Revolutionary War. So, you know, I'm doing this as a volunteer, but it's, uh, again, it's that intersection of archaeology and technology and uh, public education and all these, uh, these things that mean a lot to me. Nice. Nice. That's really cool. How are you doing, Chris? Where are you? Uh, I am in, well, technically Ocean City, but the bigger town is Ocean Shores, Washington. It's over on the uh, Pacific Coast. Well, kind of central central Washington coast, I guess, so to speak, right on the Pacific Ocean. In fact, there's a trail. 15 minutes to my right as I'm sitting here is the uh, Pacific Ocean. It's all cloudy and crazy out there. Nice. Good weather? Uh, it's just started raining and it's cloudy, so <laughs> not so much. But you like that. <laughs> I do actually love it. It's not so good for our tech setup in here because our solar panels on the roof. Ooh. We were up in the Washington Peninsula for the week before this, and I had to run the generator every day because our 1,800 watts of solar on the roof was not enough to keep the batteries topped off. We were maybe getting five, 600 watts of peak solar during the day, and then it would just trail off on both sides of that. And uh, that's just not enough to, to keep everything going. So had to run the generator. This park Wait. we're at has has plugins. So am I hearing this right? It's it's rainy in the Pacific Northwest. It's crazy, right? Yeah. It's uh <laughs> it's I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of a crazy world, let's talk about gamifying education and we are bringing on a guest. I actually I get random emails from people saying, "Hey, this person might be good for an interview." And to be honest, most people just see network or they see podcasts and they send it out without thinking, and I get these just like totally off the wall requests for interviews for people. And this was kind of one of those things I thought, and I was looking at it. And I was like, wait a minute. I was just like almost ready to hit delete. And I was like, actually, this sounds kind of interesting. And I think we could make this work for this podcast. And I really want to talk to this guy. So let me tell you first a little bit about JD Calavelli. JD Calavelli is an analyst and UX designer at the Center for Radical Innovation for Social Change at the University of Chicago, otherwise known as RISC. He is a recent graduate from Brown University, where he studied political theory and modern culture and media with an emphasis 
emphasis on the impact of emerging interactive technologies. At the Center for Risk, JD has been working primarily in the education space, finding new and interesting ways to modernize and expand what it means for teachers to teach and students to learn. JD, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much. It's really, really awesome to be here. Super excited to speak to you and the rest of your listeners. Fantastic. Well, why don't we just start by learning a little bit about the very well-named and makes me want to work there, Center for Radical Innovation and Social Change at the University of Chicago. What kind of stuff are you guys doing there? Yeah, for sure. So the Center of Risk, as we affectionately shorthandedly call nice. it. <laughs> so it was a, it, it's it's somewhere between a social innovation lab, uh, think tank and a nonprofit mm-hmm. sort of sits in this interesting space in between a bunch of different areas of thought and and of knowledge. So we're affiliated with the university, but we don't really have the same incentive structures as like a university uh, department would or university research would. We aren't a for-profit enterprise, so we don't have the same incentive structure of having to appeal to a profit motive or a profit incentive. And Mm. we are a nonprofit, but we aren't a traditional nonprofit in the sense that we don't necessarily have to apply for grants or anything like that. Luckily enough, we're, we're able to be funded by generous donations, which is really awesome. But we're started by Steve Levitt, the author of Freakonomics, sort of because he wow. did a lot of work, right? He, he thought a lot about how the world is an interesting place and we don't always look at it from the right angles. We depend a lot on conventional wisdom mm-hmm. to kind of guide the way in which we approach different elements of the world. Um, and he was sort of nice. like, well, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> it might be interesting <laughs> to sort of take an outsider's uh, opinion or an outside perspective, sort of unencumbered and unfettered by these other uh, incentive structures to see what's really going on in some of these spaces and try to do some genuine good. So that's the the long and the short of it. I, it's a very new organization, yeah. so we're, we're still kind of figuring out where we are and what we do. But we have a lot of different projects in a lot of different spaces, one of which I'm here to talk to you all about today, I imagine. Yeah, I need to find out more about this. I do think that that what you were just saying, looking at the world from multiple angles, that's something that we're constantly trying to remind ourselves. And that's why your project and risk were appealing to Chris and me, because even though this isn't about archaeology or directly applicable to archaeology, that willingness to step back outside of our comfort zone, outside of our normal perspectives, talk to somebody that doesn't do what we do to try to find out where these intersections of culture and technology intersect with what we do try to do and that, you know, and, you know, view the world, view our work, view our interpretations from multiple angles. So that's a, that's a really big thing. And uh, before we jump into it, I also, you know, Chris, I don't know if you call, but uh, back in November of 2017, we interviewed Joshua Fairfield, episode mm-hmm. 67. And it was a similar sort of thing. He was uh, talking about his book, Owned. Uh, it had nothing to do with archaeology, but it had a lot to do with right. technology and the ownership of technology and such. And so that was a nice intersection. I keep on thinking about that book and thinking about that discussion that we had because it's um, mm-hmm. it, it's resonated over these last few years. And I'm hoping that, uh, that some of what we talk about with JD today uh, does the same. Yeah, absolutely. And first off, JD, you kind of had me at Steve Levitt because uh, <laughs> I, you know, I listen to a lot of Archaeology Podcast Network podcasts as a producer, and I, I've kind of had to stop listening to some others. But I used to be a pretty religious listener of Freakonomics. And anytime they'd bring on Steve Levitt, I was just like, oh, my God, this guy, he's just like speaking everything that, you know, is right. Because mm-hmm. he just is so 
kind of like deadpan and and matter of fact with his opinions. It's just amazing. I love it. <laughs> yeah, he's um he's he's a really interesting guy. And our office is really small. We're only about sixteen analysts, uh, yes. so we get to work directly with him. Oh, and he's awesome. just he's just amazing. He's super intelligent. Really interested in you know, like I said, sort of challenging conventional wisdom, thinking mm-hmm. about how we could think about certain things differently, try to find the truth kind of hidden in the details. And I hope, you know, some of that has has rubbed off on me in my in my time with risk and, and will continue to going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about, you know, one of the things that you wanted to talk about on the show. But I'm just wondering, do you guys as as analysts, are you working on a number of projects right now or are you super like hyper focused on on a project with a team? How does that work? Yeah, so it, it sort of depends. But in general, we, we tend to cycle around on a bunch of different projects Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had the, the benefit of working in a bunch of different areas, although mostly my interest area has kind of driven me into the space of education and modernizing education and how we can sort of improve educational outcomes. But some other sort of uh, projects that I've, that I've worked on thus far at risk have been uh, working with a company that has developed an algorithm to predict earthquakes, which was previously considered to be unpredictable, mm-hmm. or which were rather previously considered to be unpredictable. Um, so we're working with them sort of to build out an API to validate the extent to which they actually are able to predict earthquakes. Uh, another project that I that I worked on was with a group out of New York that was interested in uh, utilizing beatbox for speech therapy. We worked with them to, uh, to develop a randomly controlled trial to test whether their curriculum actually does benefit students with speech impediments. So, you know, just uh, a bunch of kind of the, the spaces where like people maybe aren't necessarily looking to find social good, the spaces where there isn't so much attention drawn, we, we try to look. Okay. Nice. I'm going to actually at the risk of derailing it, which is my main function on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I, you use the word analysts and not researchers. And that is interesting to me. There's got to be a backstory to that. Yeah, I, I think I'm not sure for the backstory, but I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of people that that come to risk come with a more data analytics background, mm-hmm. and so that was that was partially where I came to risk from. Uh, I was political theory with like applied political theory lens, which is kind of like a oxymoron, I think, if you think about it. So uh, a lot of my work in in political theory was sort of with the application side, the data analytics side there. And I think a lot of other people come to risk with a similar background in terms of like approaching problems from a data-driven perspective and trying to suss out some interesting information from data sets and whatnot. And, you know, that's that's Steve's big thing. Mm -hmm. Steve is a huge fan of taking data and looking at data and thinking about how, oh, well, what is this data actually showing us or what is this data actually telling us uh, as opposed to what we think, you know, or what we assume it would be telling us. So... That's, I think, where the analyst term comes from. But we do our fair bit of researching as well. Well, I would assume. I was just uh, a little hung up on that that title as, as being not what I expected. And so maybe that's yeah. uh, look at the world from different angles and uh, you know give yeah. it, give yourself a, a title that's not necessarily what one would expect in a we research expect. environment. Yeah, that's kind of uh, that, what that's eating your own dog food to a certain extent. 
<laughs> All right. So probably in segment two, we're going to talk about the game you guys have developed or are developing called Algorithm. And before we get there, though, I've got the title of this podcast. Hopefully I don't change it after this recording. <laughs> I've got the title of this podcast. And, and, and in the intro, we're talking about the gamification of education. So as you guys are looking around and, and identifying places that, you know, need help that you can that you can do something for, as you mentioned, what made you land on gamification as a way to help education? Because there's probably lots of ways we can try to help education since it's incredibly flawed in a lot of ways. <laughs> I think there's a lot of ways in which education needs help. And we hope that, that it can be helped in every possible way that it can be. We decided to take a look at the gamification space, particularly because it's new enough where it's interesting, but it's not mm -hmm. established enough yet where it's really well understood exactly what it means, in our opinion, to to like gamify education. It's very hot, right? I think a lot of people kind of like, oh, yes, let's let's gamify everything. Let's, let's talk about how we can make everything into a game because it will incentivize people to do things. But that's like the, the exact ways in which in which that's going to work in the education space is still very much on the up and up in terms of how that's going to to happen. So we found that an interesting space. Also, Steve, you know, as a as an academic, is very interested not only in data analytics but also behavioral economics, and he's often often described as like a behavioral economist. And you know, while I was not a behavioral economics major, I've been surrounded by individuals who who know far more about it than me. And one of the most important things about behavioral economics, and one of the most interesting things about behavioral economics, at least to me in my time at risk so far, has been about incentives and incentive structures. And okay. I've used that word incentive, I think, like 100 times at this point already. And it's only been like 10 minutes. But uh, <laughs> I think it will come up a, a lot more as, as we continue to talk. But the idea, the idea, you know, behind incentives and nudges of like, how do we get people to do things that they otherwise don't necessarily want to do? And education and gamification of education kind of fits in that mental model of like, okay, in some cases, kids don't necessarily want to engage in education or the education system as it currently exists, can we utilize gamification? Can we utilize um, you know, games and interactive art and experiences like that to try to incentivize students to engage and with, with things that otherwise they might not be interested in engaging in and hopefully spark an interest in those things going forward, uh, even if they didn't think that they would have an interest in them. So that's sort of, I think, why we decided to, to look at the gamification angle specifically. Yeah, and that's tough with education too, right? Because it's not just education is a buzzword. It's education of certain topics. And I'm just thinking about like normal, normal games and, and specifically like video game type stuff. I mean, a lot of the things that stick with people are some of the more harder tasks, but still entertaining in a, in a way that makes you want to do it over and over and over and over again to either try to better your time or, you know, just do better at it. And then something just sticks in your brain, obviously, if you do that thing through repetition and trying to get people to do that and also teach them something valuable, not just how to shoot and kill aliens in a more efficient way, is, <laughs> yeah. uh, is, is a huge challenge, I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the way in which we've been thinking about it, so I, I come from a game design background. I, I studied sort of interactive art as well and game design prior to coming to Risk. I was kind of an odd duck, I think, for, for risk before getting there, which is cool because I came with a different perspective and a different mindset, which I think is exactly what Steve's looking for in terms of people exactly. showing up, you know. Hmm. But, you know, one of the things one of the things about that problem sort of is a fundamental game design problem of like, how do you design a mechanic? How do you design a function? How do you design the activity that 
the player is going to undertake right in such a way that they'll be interested in continuing to undertake that thing to do it over and over and over again. And that's hard enough when you aren't also including the educational aspect, right? It's hard enough when you aren't also trying to teach them something about the world or something about, you know, anything. So it's definitely something that we're, we're exploring. And it's definitely a fundamental concern when it comes to making games, let alone educational games. So, you know, we're (laughs) trying our best and, uh, and hopefully We've made, hopefully we've made something that can at least start a conversation about how we can try to do that better going forward. Okay. Well, I think with that, we will take our first break. And on the other side, we're going to talk about the game you guys have developed, again, called Algorhythm. And it's all about data science and We'll get, we'll get into that. In the meantime, we've got some ads coming up. If you want to help us out for the Archaeology Podcast Network, be sure to head over to arcpodnet.com slash members, and you can help us out for less than a Netflix, Netflix subscription a month and about the same as an expensive coffee at Starbucks. So that's not too bad. And you keep this kind of education out in the space. Back in a minute. the word the jc penny friends and family sale is back and this week we're passing the savings on to you use your extra 30 percent off coupon to prep your home and style your family for easter that's extra savings on top of our great low prices plus share your coupon with everyone you know and love it's always better when we save together jc penny make everybody count offer valid 311 through 317 exclusion supply see store or jcp.com for details Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to episode 181 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we are talking to J.D. Calavelli about the gamification of education. Now, we've kind of hinted around this. So let's talk about the game that you guys have developed, Algorhythm, which I love the name, by the way. I just kind of hope that that's somebody's name or something like that. Algorhythm. I don't know. (laughs) It's a brainstorming session across our entire team when somebody just sort of a fellow analyst named He's very good mm-hmm. with puns. Like that's his thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was like, "Guys, I, I got it." Like, and we were like, "What are you talking about? You don't have it." We just stepped into the room, and he's like, "No, we totally got it." And he pulled out algorithm, and we were like, "Okay, yep, that's it." We literally ended the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> when you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, we knew. We knew. Nice, nice. All right. So, what is algorithm? What are you trying to teach? I sort of discussed a couple of things that I've worked on at risk up until this point, but one of our biggest initiatives and one of the initiatives that I think we're most known for thus far is our Data Science for Everyone initiative. Mm -hmm. And so we started a a coalition with a bunch of different stakeholders, quite a number of different stakeholders uh, around the country that are interested in in advancing the teaching of data science in K through 12 education. Back to sort of like Steve's, you know, modus operandi of like, Data is important. We need to be reading data. We need to be data literate. We need to be using data to find interesting information, interesting elements of the world that perhaps are hidden from our immediate view and starting that conversation about how to talk about data and how to think about data much earlier than where we currently are. I know for me, it wasn't really until my junior year of college that I even had a course that was 
talking about what data is and how to analyze it. And the, the impetus behind uh, starting data science for everyone for risk was to sort of make that first conversation happen earlier. And so for us, the reason why we created algorithm was to try to start that conversation as early as we felt we possibly could. So we created this game for late like elementary school to early middle school students okay. to sort of introduce them to some very, very fundamental, but very, very important topics about data. Because we had this interesting conversation with some students when we were sort of, you know, when we were first testing the game as we were developing it, you know, data-driven designing the game mm-hmm. as we were developing it out. And we would ask students, you know, what, when you think of data, what do you think of? And a sizable number of students uh, in that age group said, the thing that your phone gives you to allow you to connect to the internet. Oh, and we would sort boy. of like collectively facepalm, you know, and be like, oh my God. <laughs> but also we totally understand, right? That's, that is sort of like culturally or rather like the zeitgeist understanding of, of what data is or the way that we sort of discuss data most prevalently or the word yeah. data comes up most prevalently rather like in, in, regular context. Yeah. So we wanted to start the conversation as early as possible. Like what is data? You know, what can you use data for? Right? Why is it important to understand data ultimately because you, you can use it to help you make more informed better decisions. So that was mm. kind of like our impetus behind creating algorithm and and our initial sort of guiding principles. Yeah, that's actually interesting because the, that use of the word data, I mean, we use it so many ways. I, I would never have guessed that kids would have used it in that particular way. But of course, that's where they hear it in the house, I'm sure, most frequently. Dad saying, you used up all our data this month. <laughs> I, mean, I know I said that to my kids a million times. <laughs> so, so, wow. That, okay, there we go. Right back to the, the uh, looking at the world from multiple angles. I hadn't even thought of the basic uh, you know meaning of that word. So anyhow, can you give us a little description for uh, for us how the, how the game works? I mean, I downloaded it onto my iPad earlier so I could play it a little bit, but can you tell us what the metaphor is, what's going on, and what specifically you're trying to teach about data through that app? Yeah, so happy to do so. So the game takes place on the dance floor, and the player is tasked with acting as the DJ for this particular dance floor. And as the DJ, their role is to you know, get the dance floor moving. <laughs> and so the, the way in which they, they are tasked with getting the dance floor moving is by fulfilling certain requests or requirements with regards to the, the music that the songs that they choose to be a part of their playlist. And so students in the first two levels of the game are tasked with creating a playlist that fulfills a certain criteria. So, you know, make a danceable playlist, right? Make an energetic playlist, make a very Hmm. tempo driven playlist, right? And in the abstract, that's sort of like, okay, well, that's interesting, right? How exactly do I do that? And the catch is that we present students not only with the sounds themselves, the song themselves, or bites of the songs themselves, but we also present them with some information about the songs that has been derived specifically from the Spotify API. So Spotify determines like, oh, this song in our database has this number danceability, has this number uh, tempo, has this number energy. And so sort of we were nudging the students, you know, ideally to utilize both their, you know, sonic intuition of like, oh, I've heard this song, this song makes me dance. But not only that, you know, this song has a certain danceability score, danceability value that's been determined as a piece of data connected to this particular song. Right. And if I use those two things together, my own intuition about 
you know, what is a danceable song and these this information, this, this actual data about the danceability level of the song or energy or tempo, then I could create the best playlist possible. So that's the first two levels. The last level is just taking requests from the dance floor up until basically you fail a certain number of times and you go for a high score. So, and the taking of requests works in a very similar way where it's like, oh, this person has asked me to play a song that has a certain level of danceability and also a certain level of tempo or a certain you know tempo and a certain level of energy. And the catch is that you have a time limit, right? You can't spin through every single possible record to figure out which song should be used in that particular instance. You have to start using the data to help you make that decision in a timely manner. So again, kind of, you know, we hope that we can frame this conversation about, you know, data isn't just the thing that powers your phone on the internet. It's information about certain things that can be utilized in conjunction with your own sort of thoughts and feelings about a particular thing to make better decisions about that thing. In this case, you know, what makes the best Spotify playlist, what makes the best song playlist, what will get the people dancing as much as possible, right? But that could be extrapolated further in any other number of ways, right? And that's that's the idea. Hopefully, we're, we're planting that seed such that it can continue to grow going forward. I hope that makes sense. Does that, does that answer the question? It does. Yeah, I think it does. I, I just want uh, to, to, to clarify my then understanding of it is what you're sh- shooting for. You've got these uh, the, the tempo, energy, and danceability scores for each of the tracks. And what you're trying to do is maximize a certain outcome based off of those scores. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. That's really cool. And I love this type of game. Anything that involves, I feel like music and rhythm and things like that in order and and using that to kind of teach you other stuff. It's just one of those things that kind of sticks in our brain, doesn't it? So how long did it take you guys to develop this game? Because I was actually, when we were starting to get around with this, I thought we were going to talk about some kind of a concept and then, you know, it's on the app store and you can download it and play it right now. (laughs) So, and it looks like it's not, you, you created a whole company around either this game or apps in general. I'm not really sure, but you know, you created a, a company around doing that. It's a free game. So how, how long did it take you guys to fully develop this once you had the idea? Yeah. So the idea was sort of in the works and the game was in the works prior to me joining Risk earlier this past year. So I would say all in all, it probably took us about two years and change. Mm-hmm. And actually we didn't make a company around the game. We had the benefit of working with a company out of Toronto called Hmm. Enable Education that offered their own services as a development firm for us pro bono because they believed sort of in in our vision of of what this should look like. And yeah, for that, we're, we're, you know, incredibly, incredibly grateful for them. And we'll continue to sing their praises for the amount of hard work that they put into this project as well. But yeah, you know, the, the game was, it was a long time in the making. And a lot of that was, you know, development time, but also a lot of it was, you know, living by our own word where it was kind of us actually testing and making sure and gathering data about, you know, our game and the extent to which it actually does do what we hope it does, whether it actually, you know, teaches students these fundamental things about data and whether it, you know, helps them kind of better understand what data actually is. So, you know, living by our own practices uh, was a lot of that as well. Yeah. One thing I think is interesting and Apple's been doing this for a little while now, it, it tells you when you go to the app store, what data is, collected against you, you know, and usually that means private data, like data that's personally about you. And it's interesting for a game about data science that no data is actually collected. It's what it says on Apple, <laughs> but I'm wondering, <laughs> nope, that means no personal data. So I understand. Yeah, that, yeah, we, you, we, yeah. We, we don't collect any personal data like that, but we do collect a little bit of like, 
you know, uh, average session time, you know, where's your drop off, that kind of stuff, which is interesting that that doesn't show up in the app store, but also, yeah, no, we, we don't need your name. We just hope that you're learning something, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, that's what I was actually getting at is what, what other kind of, like you mentioned session info and stuff like that, but what else are you guys collecting in order to, I guess, learn more about how the app is actually helping people learn more about helping children learn more about data science and, and, and then are you, are you making continuous improvements to the app based on that? Or is it just kind of like it's living out there now and you'll keep it alive, but you're onto something else. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of view it from two different angles of like the more quantitative stuff of like, what are the monthly active users? What are the daily active users? You know, how long is the playtime? What levels do people get to, mm-hmm. you know, do they get to the very end? You know, how long do they play at the end? And a lot of that is more like, oh, you know, it, are people playing our game, right? Is it is it yeah. fun enough that it keeps people involved? And again, that's more quantitative. And that's more to the kind of gamification, the initial point about gamification of like, oh, hopefully it can serve as an incentive structure to get people to engage with things that they otherwise might not necessarily engage in, right? right. Um, and in this case, that's, you know, learning a little something about data science. It's students learning a little something about data science. Nice. The qualitative cool. side is probably more of, you know, where we get our fill of have students actually learned this or have they actually gotten something out of it? And that has come more specifically from conversations with students, conversations with teachers that have used in the classroom or are planning on using it in the classroom and have, you know, made made the case to us that it's sort of like a, a helpful thing for them. And I think people oftentimes kind of forget that data is more than just numbers and and you know what you can see on an Excel spreadsheet. It's also that qualitative element of like, we got this information from these teachers specifically that said that it's helpful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's the combination of both of those two things that's helping us kind of drive the direction of it going forward. And ideally, you know, we're, we're not entirely sure, to be honest, where where we'd like to go from here. We, we'd love to see, you know, the game continue to be played and we'd love to get, you know, people's reactions and, and thoughts about how it can be improved going forward. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we can continue to improve it a little bit or maybe take what we've learned and apply it to something else and something different. But yeah, you know, we, we just released. So we're we're hoping that students and, and people can get a little bit of something out of it. And then we can, you know, get some information from them about how we can hopefully make it better, do something better in the future. We're still early on. So we're, we're hoping to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to keep going, keep on keeping on. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you hinted at it a bit there. And uh, it was a question that I'd actually written up on, you know, on our notes here. Uh, do you actually have a lesson plan that goes along with, with algorithm? Is the intent like solo exploration, a uh, child will download this and play the game and learn? Or is it intended for some kind of guided, you know, especially like a classroom environment? Is there an overarching approach that you're taking, not just for this game, but also for any educational products that Risk is producing? One of, one of the big things that, that we always say at Risk, and it's, it's not a cop out, I swear, is that we're generalists, but we're not specifically, you know, we, we don't know, we don't know, we know a little bit of everything, but we don't know anything all that well. <laughs> and so sort of part of how that sort of um, expressed itself in this project is that, you know, we would like to work with teachers who have played our game and who find it interesting to develop a more comprehensive lesson plan about how it can be actually, you know, utilized. So one of the things that when we initially created it, one of the pillars of our design was that we'd want it to be something that a student could play, you know, and derive something from even without the existence of a lesson plan around it, even without sort of, you know, a teacher guiding through it. But we also hope that it could be something that could be utilized in a classroom that could be used, you know, by a teacher to help sort of 
you know, teach, teach a little bit of something interesting on a Friday when they have some extra time or something mm. like that, sort of in service to this bigger goal of us encouraging data science and uh, data literacy in, in K through 12 classrooms. So hopefully, you know, one of our next steps then, and, you know, we, we would love any sort of advice from anyone on this is exactly how we could have that happen in a classroom and how that lesson plan could be created to have it work as well as possible in the classroom, right? One of our, our hope is that it sort of teaches, again, those, those like three very fundamental ideas of like, there's data everywhere. There's data behind things that you may not necessarily think there is data behind, <laughs> I guess, for data isn't <laughs> the thing that powers your phone and also that it can be used <laughs> to help you make some decisions. But a more comprehensive lesson plan around it is hopefully in the works and more than hopefully in the works, we would like for it to be in the works with the guidance from more people more intelligent than us in that space. Well, awesome. I've got a, uh, a follow-up question about this, uh, but why don't we take the break right now? Because my, my mind is buzzing right now with, with, uh, with <laughs> ideas that you're triggering. <laughs> cool. All right. We'll be back in a minute. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hi, welcome back to Architect episode 181. J.D. Calvelli, you've been telling us some great stuff about this program that you were working on at risk called Algorithm. And you you hinted at it for a number of different reasons, but I've got to ask you upright. Why teach data science to kids? Yeah, very important question that we get very often, unsurprisingly. You know, it, it comes down to a couple of things for us at risk. Number one is that you know, the, the concept of, of data, data privacy, data security, data presence, you know, data as an object for exploration and for analysis is super culturally salient. And not only is it culturally salient, but it's just like fundamentally important when it comes to like navigating the world, in our opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a certain level of like world literacy and information literacy that you can get when you can analyze a data set, or even more broadly, when you can look at a graph correctly, right? Because data science sort of expands far beyond the idea of like looking at an Excel spreadsheet, right? But it's just mm -hmm. the whole concepts behind like looking at representations of data, creating representations of data, having those things say something, having them represent something, you know, being able to parse out exactly what they're trying to say and exactly what they're representing. You know, this is just like, not only is it culturally relevant, but it's just the direction that sort of all a lot of inquiry seems to be going now. And, you know, in our opinion, it's it's better to, you know, have those situations, have that conversation start as soon as possible, as opposed to sort of, you know, push it off down the pipe until you might take a class on it, you know, in, in a political science, you know, sociology course or, or, you know, college. You know, the thing is, like, it's it's an important enough element of our daily lives now that we don't feel like 
we can afford to push that off on students you know, anymore. It's something mm-hmm. that all students should have a certain baseline knowledge of prior to entering the workforce, prior to entering the world, because it's just so fundamental to being able to you know, learn and grow and understand and, and take in information as, as we've gone forward in, in time. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And uh, certainly as different kinds of data are more accessible to more people through more different venues, being able to assess them and interpret them is, uh, is, is useful. So a uh, follow-up to that question then is, is there a sweet spot in terms of age for kids to start learning about data? You're targeting late elementary, early middle school, which incidentally is what I've worked with when I was in ed tech Super primarily. Cool. Have you gotten into the data about when it's best to teach them about data? Yeah. So we've, we, we haven't done anything specific on that front, but kind of from our own anecdotal experience, data science as an idea or data science as a discipline you know, like most other disciplines, build off of themselves, right? So there, there are certain elements that you can learn earlier on that can help sort of inform and set you up to be able to learn other things later on. So one of the things, you know, when we were when we were talking to Steve about this project initially, he was like, let's make a game to try to teach fourth through sixth graders how to do a regression analysis. And I was like, Steve, uh, I don't know how to do a regression analysis. <laughs> I was like, I'll, let me go learn how to do a regression analysis. And then I'll tell you if I think we can teach, uh, you know, fourth or sixth graders how to learn to do a, a regression analysis. And, you know, that's, that's sort of a, our facetious way of saying or, or, you know, jocular way of saying that there, there are levels to this, right? There, there are certain levels of sort of, of expectations of, of what you should know at different stages. Um, and we hope that, you know, even in that age range, right, we, we're at the point now of combating or rather just filling any gaps in terms of like lack of information of what data data is and, and what it can be used for. And so we hope sort of in the younger age groups that we can just start those fundamental conversations of like, here's data, you know, what is it? What can it be used for? Right. And then maybe some rudimentary visualization stuff where it's like, you know, a graph is really more than just numbers on a line, right? It's it's demonstrating something and can be used to demonstrate something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as you go on in your career, then you can start entering more of the statistics adjacent stuff, you know, maybe in high school, definitely in college of like, you know, uh, how can we prove that certain things are true? Or how can we get as close to proof about certain things are true? Because the one thing you'll always hear is correlation is not equal causation. I might get that tattooed at this point. I've heard it so many times. <laughs> but the point being like, you know, you... You sort of graduate from an earlier space of like, oh, what is, you know, data and why is it important? And then how can I use it to start making decisions? And then it even pipes into, you know, computer science and machine learning. Uh, A lot of that is fundamentally data science. And so if you ultimately get to that point, you know, and you're still disinterested in data and and how we can use it to make better predictions about things, then you can start learning about, you know, k-means clustering and neural nets and so on and so forth. So you know, it's, it's just, again, to the earlier point of like, it's this, it's this space that sort of exists across many different disciplines that we feel is yet sort of underexplored in the K through 12 space. And, you know, the, again, the sort of like joking way that we describe it is like, how many times have you ever used uh, a TI-84 calculator after, you know, uh, high school pre-calculus, right? Or high school right. calculus, right? But how many times in life do you need to be able to analyze a set of information and be able to make, you know, educated conclusions about it. And so that hopefully, you know, can 
build up further and further um, and continue to grow as, you know, with a student as their interest in the area grows. If they want to take it all the way to machine learning, great. If they want to know how to, you know, make macros in an Excel spreadsheet, great. If they'd like to learn how to visualize in, in R, uh, you know, make data visualizations in R, that's great. But it can grow and it can change. And there's so many avenues that you can go towards. And it's just a question of like getting that exposure early on because it's the exposure that seems to be missing right now. Yeah, it totally seems like looking at especially, say, kids that are in fourth to sixth grade right now, you know, just because of the advancement of technology, most of your manufacturing and and other type jobs that don't really require much beyond a high school education are slowly going away, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're either automating those, making them more efficient, or actually developing robots to do those jobs because it's cheaper. So as that happens, people are going to have to be better critical thinkers and actually use this kind of thing. Because like you just said, I mean, I'm 47 and I, I heard that growing up like, oh, you'll never use this math outside of, you know, high school or something like that. And that's like, Kind of sad. Why shouldn't I use this math outside of high school? It's because most of the people I grew up around are in construction or, you know, doing something where they literally don't use that kind of thing on a daily basis. Right. But I think some of the jobs that may be out there in the future, you will actually need to think this way. Even though a computer might be doing it for you, it's helpful to understand the reasoning and the why in order to actually tell the computer and, and what to do in, a, in the right way and then understand the results that you're getting back. One of the ways that like I to that point right, that, that I kind of like conceptualize this is like at one point in time, there was a brick layer, right? Like the job was to go lay bricks somewhere. My yeah. great, my, you know, my uh, great grandfather or rather my grandfather, sorry, um, like immigrated to the States from Italy. And he kind of worked in that, in that space. He did, you know, construction. And there was a time when, you know, he was a big buff man kind of carrying bricks around, right? You know, and that, that was a construction job. Right. And sort of like, the reality is that like that kind of job has kind of disappeared because we created, you know, bricklaying technology, right? We created bricklaying mm-hmm. machines, right? But in, in the absence of the bricklayer job, right, there has created a necessity for the like bricklaying machine manager, right? Right. It's sort of like this weird, you know, the death of one created the birth of another, right? Mm-hmm. And like, what is the skill set that you need? to manage a set of machines, right? Like data science, right? Like to a certain extent, right? You need to be aware yeah. of like, okay, I have 50 machines, right? All of them are creating, you know, or laying this many bricks in this amount of time. Let me put that all in the spreadsheet, right? I want to try to maximize the amount of time. Well, maybe, you know, let me A-B test this. Maybe if I have 10 machines running, you know, in one place, then overall, as opposed to five and five, then overall my amount of time, uh, you know, to lay the entire bricks for the house will increase. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm spitballing yeah. here, right? But, but the point, the point more specifically is like, you know, to be literate in that space, you need a certain exposure to like, what is data and why is it important? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not, not mm-hmm. to beat the dead horse on it, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people have sort of recognized this problem of like, oh, well, there's a lot of jobs that seem to be disappearing and we seem to not be preparing people in high school and beyond to like do the new things that are coming. Right. But the missing piece is like, Oh, well, one of the things that we seem to need to understand or need to teach students to understand is this element of like managing data, right. And understanding data and being able to make decisions about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to, back to the initial point of like, that's why we think it's important to be teaching all students at every age, what these, what this is and what this, what this means and how it can be utilized because, you know, we, we believe that it's important in, in, in every function, right? We had the benefit of 
going out and interviewing Sal Khan of Khan Academy, mm-hmm. where we, oh, nice. uh, because uh, Khan Lab School sort of piloted an initial program for data science in high school, uh, in a high school setting. And, you know, one of, one of the things that he said that I think is really prescient, and, you know, I'm not quoting him directly by any means, but one of the things that he, he said that I thought was, again, very prescient was like, you know, 50 years ago, who had big data, right? You know, maybe major companies had big data, right? Mm-hmm. You know, insurance companies maybe had big data, right? Like a lot of data from which you could derive decisions. The reality is now like everyone has access to that, right? Right. And not only that, but like there's a certain expectation of the ability to utilize that to make better decisions about whatever it is that you're doing, right? Whether it's just searching Google, right? Or finding a data set on Kaggle or pulling from a, you know, an API, a, an openly hosted or privately hosted API, right? Like the access is there in a way that it's never been before. And the reality is when the access is there, there's a certain expectation of ability to utilize it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you're you're making a strong case for why people have to be not just numerate, but but comfortable with analyzing and uh, and applying data to their to their lives in various ways. When it comes to teaching kids, I'm getting kind of a, a vibe of the same reason why you would teach them a foreign language when they're fairly young, so that it becomes a natural part of how they think and how they can interact with the world. So. You you settled on gamification, and there are many many different ways to teach people. Gamification being just one of them. So, could you just uh, explain why you went that particular route, and maybe touch on what you think the strengths and maybe even some of the limitations or weaknesses of gamification are as an educational tool? Yeah, for sure. So we yeah we we did we did decide to approach the gamification angle. I think so. Sort of from like a from a top down perspective, what's interesting about gamification, right, is it kind of challenges the idea of what work is, right? We have this sort of like cultural conception that like work needs to be not fun, like the absence of fun <laughs> equals work, right? And, you know, all we, work and no play. Yeah, all work and no play. Exactly. Or like work hard so that you can play hard, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, obviously, there is importance to to recognizing work as as a discipline that requires effort and you know and uh, and focus and attention and so on and so forth. But to like completely divorce it from the concept of play, right, or from the concept of of learning through play, kind of doesn't sit right with me, right. And I think it also doesn't sit right with a lot of of, of individuals at risk as well. Um, you know, and while we're not like developmental psychologists, again, generalists, no, no knowledge of anything. Socrates, all that I know is that I know nothing. But, you know, uh, <laughs> while we're not developmental psychologists by any means, right? Like when you're a kid, I remember or my parents told me that when I was a kid, right, there's this huge emphasis on like learning through play, like learn through exploration, right? Like have your mm-hmm. kid put this, you know, square peg in the round hole and be like, oh, that doesn't work. Like, why doesn't that work? And then try something different, right? But then after, you know, you're no longer a kid, like a kid kid, that seems to all disappear. You know, like exactly uh, like puppies play fighting, right? Like there's a space where it seems to be good to allow for a certain level of play. And actually through that play, you learn something, right? But after you're like a baby, you know, that that sort of understanding of play and, and its and its respect or and how it works in, in respects with work, right? Or, or rather how it can sort of be utilized to help facilitate work, like, disappears, right? Or seems to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, from like a higher level perspective, we feel like gamification is really interesting because it kind of 
merges that space again, where it's like, oh, play is good and we can learn from it. And work doesn't necessarily need to be no fun, right? Um, and in fact, like maybe through some fun, you can actually learn more than you would have been able to learn if you didn't have any fun while you were doing it, right? <laughs> Again, sort of like anecdotally, I remember sort of what put me back on, on this path like a very, very long time ago now, not that long ago, but you know, but what put me back on this path of, of uh, gamification and being interested in this space was a game that I played in sixth grade that was a simulation of the Black Death, um, and how it affected medieval Europe. Yeah. Um, and it was a game with dice and rolling and you had to make rules and you had to defend your town and, you know, people could die. And, you know, because of the Black Death, if you didn't quarantine correctly and so on and so forth. And, you know, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say, I don't remember that much about sixth grade <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> at all. But I do remember that. Right. And I, and I to this day remember that and remember that experience as being super meaningful to me. So, you know, again, this is all sort of like higher level, but we feel like, and I personally feel like games has the games have the potential to really meaningfully get people to engage with something, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking about sixth grade and and this is again, another one of my asides because I got old brain. When I first started working at Dalton, it was because of this game that was produced at the school based off of an archaeological excavation. And it was That's a collaborative group project and we've continued it on actually i've been helping them redo it for the fifth grade now so we're talking about the same roughly the same grade range that you're looking at with uh with algorithm and using a kind of a game metaphor some of the game incentives in order to to teach kids right but i i also have despite having been doing this for a long long time and understanding the value of it i also kind of have a complicated relationship with gaming and gamification uh, as an educational tool that we don't have to go in now because it's it's totally an aside but you know i i think about different kinds of gamification and for me for example duolingo mm -hmm. which is a very famous way of <laughs> gamifying language learning is actually really effective for me to brush up on languages i I get very angry when I do it. <laughs> I get very frustrated. They keep on giving me all these nudges and trying to keep me in its environment for, you know, but it's, it's extremely helpful before any time before I travel overseas. But that's also, even though they have these layers of, um, of social interaction where you can like compete against other people or, you know, post your progress as you go. Uh, I don't want to do any of that. I just want to, you know, get it to quit bugging me but but yeah. that's a, a very solo activity and that stands in distinction from that archaeotype stuff that excavation which was uh, an organized group activity with a different sort of incentive structure and a, not an in the game in incentive structure so yeah i don't even know that i've got a question here other than than a comment is that there are a lot of different kinds of incentive structures that can be built around gamification and maybe i guess if i do have a question it it's how did you decide on the particular game of on the particular incentive structure that you built into algorithm that allows the player to advance. Yeah, I mean, Duolingo is a very classic example of like gamification done right, or what a lot of people perceive to be gamification done right. But in my opinion, Duolingo is like gamification done the way that people expect, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? But it, it is sort of like the expectation of like, you know, how do you make something into a game? Oh, well, you make it a competition, you give points, and that's a game, right? 
and I think, you know, for, for in a lot of cases, yeah, like that, that can be a game, right? And, you know, no, no knock on Duolingo at all. I, I think it, you know, works very well. Definitely, it seems, foreign language acquisition. But I think, and, you know, back, back to something I mentioned much earlier, like gamification and how to make a game so that it teaches people things, right, is still very much in its infancy, right, of like, how do you do that, right? Because when you ask people, when you ask a lot of people, at least anecdotally in my experience, right, when you ask people like, oh, what is gamification, right? Or like, what do we want uh, gamification or how, how, how would you expect gamification to work, right? They're like, oh, put points on it, right? And, and make it a competition and that's how you gamify something, right? Yeah. And so we, with algorithm, right, really wanted to try to challenge that a little bit. And so our idea then was to develop an incentive structure where the only way that you could meaningfully engage with the mechanic of the game, right, is by understanding the information, the subject matter that we expect you to understand, that we hope that you can learn by virtue of playing the game. So it's a little bit backwards, mm-hmm. but, the, but the way that I would explain, the, the, mo- the simplest mm-hmm. way I think I, I can explain that is like in the last stage of the game, you know, the mechanic of the game is dragging and dropping songs onto requests so that you can fulfill them to get a high score, right? But sort of the, the, the conflict is that you have a time limit right? You, you don't have all the time in the world to be able to make this decision. And so when you have a list of 100 songs to go through and only 30 seconds to make a choice about what fulfills this role, right? Or what, what fulfills this request, right? You have to use the data in order to progress in the game, right? In order to yeah. get that point, you have to understand that, oh, I need data because with using data, I can make this decision faster and more accurately than I could have if I didn't use the data, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's not quite putting points on things and making the competition. It's a little different. It's saying, no, in order to advance, you need to fundamentally understand the thing that we're doing because if you don't, then you'll fail the game, right? Right. Not sure if that, that makes sense, but I think that's kind of where we were going with it to, to answer that question. No, thank you. That, okay. uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So... Paul and I have a lot more questions to ask JD, and he's willing to stick around for a bonus segment. So if you're a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network, head over to arcpodnet.com and check out the bonus segment area in your members area. So if you just go to the top of the page or click on the hamburger icon, you can see your members area and then go to bonus. And Or actually just go to HQ uh, downloads or free downloads, whatever we call it. I don't even know. I made the whole thing. But anyway, go there and you'll find the ad-free version of the episode and then the bonus segment sitting right next to it. And, and it's right there. So if you're not a member, head over to arcpodnet.com forward slash members, support us, get more stuff like the bonus segments and, and other things. And... With that, I think we will say goodbye to JD for this part. But again, members, check out the bonus segment that we're going to record to continue having this conversation with JD. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome.